Welcome back to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in today's episode, we're speaking with Chris Cuesta, the CEO of THB. THB is a manager that I recently met with on my trip up to New York City and Connecticut. Uh, I was impressed by their operation. Uh, I've met them before, and they've been a good part of the investment allocation that I've used over a number of years. Uh, Also recently caught up with Chris when he was back in Sydney um, and conducted this interview. I was particularly surprised both on my trip to the US and uh, recently the extent and the optimism around the changes that have been implemented by the Trump administration, both in terms of tax reform and also legislative changes and the changes that they have brought about with regard to the beneficial effect to small companies and the renewed optimism and increased earnings that we're seeing come through in that space. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I did. I found it to be very interesting and see it as a very attractive part of the market. Please don't forget to share this podcast on with other people you think may benefit from it and leave a review, please. We want your feedback and ideas. Hope you enjoy. Chris, welcome to Australia and welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Chris, if perhaps you could kick off by giving us a bit of a background to yourself and your interest in investing. Sure. Well, I started my career on Wall Street in in 1995. Uh, I started off actually on a trading desk. Uh, That was my first job out of college. I worked for Van Eck in New York City. They were a commodity investing firm. And from there, I moved on to Solomon Brothers, where I was a research analyst. And then from there, I went to THB, where I am today, and started off as an analyst and worked my way up to a portfolio manager. And now I'm the CEO of THB. So I've been at THB now for 16 years. That's a long time on Wall Street. And of course, it is. And of course, THB is a micro cap investor based in Connecticut um, in the USA. And I was actually up. It's funny that, you know, I was up in your office uh, last Wednesday or Monday and it was about six degrees. And here we are in Sydney, Australia. So welcome. Um, Thank you. Give me a little bit of a flavor of THB, what they do and their background, the expertise, if you could, please. Sure. So THB was founded in 1982. And as a firm, we've always had an expertise investing in very, very small market cap size securities. These are securities, companies, stocks that at the bottom end of the market cap range. And as a firm, we've always been investing in that particular space, and, and that's continued to this day. And as it sits today, we're 100% employee-owned. We're an entrepreneurial, capitalistic uh, boutique, and we continue to invest in microcap companies. That's our flagship product, and those microcap companies are at the bottom end of the market cap range, those smallest companies that are trading on the various exchanges today. Now, one of the things I think it's worth talking to our listeners about is in Australia, when you talk about microcap with the different listing rules in Australia, you can be talking about companies with a 10 or $12 million market cap. If I'm right in thinking the average market cap inside your fund is about 540 US. So these are significant organizations, people like Callaway Golf, which people would recognize the brand. Is that fair to say? Sure. The, the companies are much bigger than what you would, you would see here in the Australian market. So the weighted average market cap of, of our portfolio, as you mentioned, is about $540 million. The range of companies that we invest in is somewhere between $100 million and, and $1 billion. And uh, they're smaller companies in the U.S., but they, they appear much larger when you compare them to the Australian microcap market. And, and why is it attractive to invest in companies in that space? We think it's an attractive place to be because there's a lot of neglect on those companies. 
uh, there's not many uh, people looking at them. And what that leads to is uh, an inefficiency in the market and, and mispriced securities. And we're able to find these great companies that have uh, strong growth profiles. They're run by capitalists and entrepreneurs. They're very, very well capitalized, and they can make sound investments over the very long term. And we think it's a great place to invest. And myself and the team, uh, we can do all the work internally on these companies. We write our own research reports, we do our own modeling, and it gives us an advantage in, in finding these great investment opportunities. I think one of the examples I've heard you speak about in the past might be something like Apple, where there's something like 50-plus Wall Street analysts or sell-side analysts um, looking at that company. So to believe that you can go in, do some analysis on that, and be smarter and better and make money in front of those people is kind of tough, whereas in your space, there's often companies that aren't even covered at all. So if you do some good research, you can often find misaligned investments. Is that correct? Yes, that's definitely correct. Okay. Um, and if so, so that to me presents a, a really good opportunity. Can you talk to me about maybe the historical returns that investors might sort of experience, have experienced in the past in this type of strategy? Sure. It's, uh, it's an interesting time because uh, this June will be the 20th anniversary of our microcap strategy. So we've been running that strategy, investing in these small, very small companies for over 20 years now. And the uh, average annual return for that strategy over those 20-year periods is about 15% annualized. So we think that our strategy, our approach in this inefficient area of the market can deliver 13 to 17% annualized returns over full market cycles. And that's essentially what we've delivered to our investors. And the type of volatility that investors are likely to experience in that type of strategy is? Due to the size of the companies, it's a bit more than large cap, but I think it's more than justified by, by the extra return that you get. Uh, so from a standard deviation basis, it's about 20%, which is, which, is a bit above, which is above large cap, but I think you're more than justified based on the return that you receive. So we agree with you it's an attractive part of the market to invest in because real expertise can um, you know, be borne out and, and give you extra value and in, the, in the shape of good returns. Can you talk to me a little bit about the environment for investing into this area at the moment? Sure. We think it's a, it's a great time to be investing in, in U.S. microcaps. Uh, there, there's a bunch of tailwinds that are developing in the market, and there's also a valuation opportunity. And we think that the combination uh, of those two elements can lead to a very powerful return stream. And so two of the things that are happening in the U.S. market, tax reform and, and deregulation, mm -hmm. are very, very important to these small companies. In America, the smallest domestically focused companies tend to pay the highest taxes. And now that tax reform is passed in Washington, D.C., you're going to see corporate tax rates in the U.S. drop to 21%. The effective tax rate of our portfolio as it sits today is 34%. So our companies are going to see the 34% drop to 21 And what that means is their earnings of the company are going to increase about 20% due to that. Uh, deregulation is another very important aspect that's going on in, in the U.S. And what that means is it's lowering aggregate costs for these smaller companies. And it's also emboldening them to grow again. They're feeling much more optimistic that they're not going to be over-regulated by some of, the, some of the agencies in Washington, D.C. And when we speak to the companies, we speak to about four to 600 companies, private and public, in any given year. So there sorry, four, 400 to 600, 600 yes, yes. Okay, well, that's a lot of companies. So it's, it's a broad measure of, of uh, U.S. companies, and uh, they're very, very optimistic, and they're very excited. They haven't seen 
the, the double benefit of, of tax reform or, or deregulation at the same time in, in a very long time since we've been running the strategy. And so they're really excited and that makes us excited. Chris, one of the things I was intrigued to hear you talk about when I visited last week was the, um, some of the cut through in that deregulation space the Trump administration is having now in Australia. Um, I guess we see one side of the media and you know, some of the stories and some of the headline grabbing decision-making and tweeting in, in the Trump administration. So I was, a, I was probably pleasantly surprised to hear when you told me that you know, there's been significant gains made in deregulation and some of the ways in which you're able to measure that. Could you perhaps talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. So regulation in Washington is, is measured. Uh, there's, there's a federal register of uh, pages of new regulations that come out of Washington, D.C. every year. And in uh, the last year of the Obama, uh, Obama administration, it hit an all-time all high of 100,000 pages of new government regulations. And, and what does that mean as a small business? It means that somebody at your company has to read the regulations that are pertinent to your particular industry or company. Then you have to deal with them. You have to comply with them. You might have to hire consultants. And what's happened during the Trump administration is we've seen the number of pages drop from 100,000 to 50. And that's the first time that we've seen a drop in government regulations since the 1980s. The last time there was a drop in government regulation was uh, during the Reagan years. He cut government bureaucracy, and that essentially unleashed a decade plus of economic activity. That was one of the great times in the American economy. So we're seeing uh, a lot of optimism from, from our companies, and, and some examples maybe over the Dodd-Frank Act that was a, a regulation put in during the GFC and it was mainly targeted at the very large financial institutions Goldman Sachs, Citibank, Morgan Stanley. It wasn't really appropriate for the very very small banks that we invest in but yet it burdened them on both uh, cost and, and just the, an intensity from, from the manpower train out of, out of the corporate suite and now that in the last month what, they, what they've done through the Federal Reserve is they've exempted small banks from the Dodd-Frank Act. And that's just one example of how you're seeing these layers of you know, regulation peeled back from these small companies. When you say small banks, can you give us a little bit of an idea and a flavor of the size of them and what they, they look like and, and how that Dodd-Frank Frank helps them? Sure. So or the these, rolling back of that, sorry. Sure. These were uh, these are small banks and thrifts. Uh, they tend to be very simple businesses. They, uh, they, they write mortgages. So typically housing mortgages, and mm -hmm. they take in deposits. So there's really no complex derivatives uh, on their balance sheets or anything of that nature. In terms of branches or locations, they can be anywhere from 8 to 25 or 30. So they tend to be very regional, local uh, lending institutions. And what happened was the Dodd-Frank Act, as I said, was really intended for much larger banks and financial institutions, and it really had no bearing. But what it was was extra paperwork that these small banks had to comply with, extra regulations. So they had to hire many more people and consultants to comply with these regulations that really weren't intended, had no bearing on their business. And so now that there's been some better thought out of Washington, D.C., they have said that these regulations didn't apply to the way these businesses were run, and you're exempt from them now. So a lot of the small banks that we own are very excited about that because it, it lowers their costs and it emboldens them to grow again. Chris, I think you've got, from what I've seen, what we've spoken about, a number of th themes within the portfolio at the moment. Would you give us some insight into those and wh where the potential upsides are that you see in those, please? 
Sure. So we, we would we would describe themes, and I think what you touch on is mega trends that we see out there. It's 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 data security, cybersecurity, health and wellness, and these are all trends that we see that are growing across the global economy. Uh, one trend that's uh, important today is the Internet of Things, and and what you're seeing is that companies and businesses are using uh, basically artificial intelligence and sensors to to manage and run and monitor all their businesses. And so an example is that trucking companies are putting sensors all over their trucks. And what these sensors are doing is measuring vibration. And that is again being wired up to the cloud. And through these vibration sensors, they can tell while the truck is running if there's maybe a problem in the engine or a potential problem. And what they would do then was order a part to be at the next brake stop for that particular truck. And so it would be ready and they would replace it when that truck went in there. So it's really an uptake in efficiency. You're seeing these sensors go inside factories, inside warehouses. And a company that, that we own is actually selling batteries that go in these sensors. And so it's a tangential play to this growing industry of Internet of Things. And so they make lithium batteries. They've been doing it for a long time. And they're seeing very, very sizable uh, revenue growth, 40% year over year. Because IoT is a, is a very high growth industry right now. And you, you don't think that's just cut across to the very large you know, players and the the alphabets and the apples, you're right. seeing significant opportunity within the, the set of companies you're able to invest in, is that correct? Sure, yes. I mean, we see we see a lot of different trends driving their businesses. Uh, these are companies that are somewhat dynamic and, and changing. You know, and what we found is over the last year or so, a lot of these companies are starting to grow their businesses again, which can provide opportunities for us. We're analyzing what they're doing. And you're seeing companies, one of the companies we own is, is a large uh, vendor of point-of-sale systems. One of our largest clients is McDonald's, yes. uh, the fast food company. And what this company is in the process of doing is they're transitioning from just a hardware vendor to more of a software cloud uh, vendor. And they're providing McDonald's, the corporation, with a suite of applications that is going to allow McDonald's to have real-time register-level data and track all the, the receipts and the food that's going out of, out of all the restaurants real-time, whereas before there was a weak lag in terms of the data. So even though it's a very, very small company, a micro-cap company, they have a blue-chip client in terms of McDonald's, and they're a company that's transitioning to a higher revenue profile, higher margin profile, and we think once the market realizes it, they're going to see a revaluation of the company higher. So that's a great opportunity for us. So I've got that. if I've got that right, they're broadly speaking a company that manufactures the fancy electronic cash registers yeah. uh, for you know KFC and McDonald's and the like, and now they're switching the business model to one where they're actually capturing and storing the data and selling that service back as a subscription service to the likes of McDonald's, which traditionally those businesses, the quality of earnings is far higher because it's far more consistent, therefore they attract a higher multiple of valuation in the markets. Right. Exactly. Roughly correct? Exactly. And we, we spoke earlier about the lack of Wall Street coverage on these companies. And that particular company, uh, uh, for, as an example, has no coverage. And so myself and the team have figured out this, uh, this investment opportunity. And we think that the company will be revalued. You're right. And so right now, that particular company is trading at less than one times revenue about 80% of revenue on a valuation basis, where software as a service companies, which you mentioned, they carry much higher multiples, anywhere from three to six times revenue. So we think uh, simultaneously you're going to get a higher revenue stream, a higher margin stream, and then you can have a substantial revaluation of the company itself. 
And these are the type of opportunities that you can't find in large cap because they tend to be much more efficient and there's many more analysts and investors looking at those companies. So you're talking about having a far closer to an efficient market at the larger space and an inefficient, more inefficient market in the smaller cap area, which gives you an opportunity. Exactly. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I know we've spoken about the effects of ETFs and index investing and the opportunity that's presenting you? Sure. So ETFs, as you know, have been growing in, in stature over the years. Uh, I'd say over the last five years, you've seen an expanded role ETFs play in, in the daily trading of any given stock. And I'll give you some data about the U.S. market. Uh, and we've looked at it and done some analysis. And so your average large cap company, uh, an S&P 500 company, has anywhere between 18 and 30% of its daily trading volume affected by ETFs. And when you drop down to microcap, where we're investing, it's essentially zero. So we think that's a real positive in the fact that we're able to invest in these companies without getting caught up in the turbulence that ETFs could possibly cause in the market. And can you explain to our listeners how uh, those large cap companies are being affected by ETFs? Well, sure. Since an ETF is essentially a passive flow. Yep. And so as flows into ETFs have grown over the years, you've seen them push these stock prices higher. And just recently in the first quarter, you saw a retrenchment of some ETF flows, and it had a fairly sizable effect on those large cap companies, irregardless of the earnings. So even if companies were reporting very good data, the fact that they were caught up in those ETFs, those stocks were going down. And it adds an element of volatility that, that we're just not comfortable with. And so we like investing in a space in the market that you can truly invest in and you're not going to be impacted by uh, the, the flows coming from ETFs. So Chris, when you're away from, one of the things I like to ask as a question to understand a strategy and how you think about it and, and what are the important metrics is you know, you're away out of the country at the moment, um, you get one phone call to ring back to the THB offices. What are the three questions or the main questions you're asking them and you want to know when you, when you get an update? Sure. Well, the first thing I ask is how the earnings have gone. So we, we're through earnings season. So I'd want to know any of our companies reported. And uh, thankfully, I can report that as we're going through earnings season, it's been quite good. So there, there's nothing negative to report there. So they're, uh, they're about meeting or above right. market expectations. Exactly. Okay. Uh, then to take a look at performance, how, how we're doing relative to our benchmarks. And, uh, that's and those benchmarks are? Uh, the Russell Microcap. So okay. that would be our benchmark for our Microcap product. And uh, we're doing quite well this year, uh, so we're happy about that. So that's been going quite well. And then any new updates in terms of companies that we're working on. So we have companies that are on our watch list that we've been moving through the pipeline and, and they would be a potential investment in the portfolio. And within that watch list, there's always questions that we're trying to answer. And, and, and my goal is to make sure that we, we get to the bottom of those companies as quickly as possible. So I'd want an update on where we stand on these various companies that we're working on for new entry into the portfolio. And from an investor point of view, what are the things that could go wrong in this space? What would be really bad news for microcaps and your strategy? Sure. I think right now, just topically, you have to say that Trump and some of his policies have been very, very beneficial. And so if something were to go wrong vis-a-vis -vis the Trump administration, I think that would be a negative. Uh, there's a fair bit of, uh, yeah. I think you can get some pretty 
you know, short odds on an impeachment. Right, right. So, so something like that, okay. Well, something like that I think would be a, a, a short-term negative, but if you believe that the vice president would carry on with his policies, then there probably wouldn't be truly that much tangible effect. I think it would be more, more headline risk. Of course, a global slowdown will affect any company, so you know, microcaps aren't immune, immune from that. But I think right now, uh, as it sits, there's many more positives than negatives. Uh, I think in any investor, there's always something to worry about. Uh, but right now, when I look at some of the pros and the cons, I think there's a lot of positives in the space. I mentioned tax reform, deregulation, and, and a really strong valuation opportunity. Terrific. Chris, look, thank you very much. That's been a fantastic summary. Really appreciate you joining us inside the rope. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate the interest. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.